We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome back to Eye on the Community. I'm Vicki Pepper. America and the world need energy transition from oil, gas, and coal to alternate sources soon, or we risk climate catastrophe. So what are the challenges to energy transition, and where are we with confronting them? On the line to discuss is Alex Chewinski, an energy and infrastructure expert who deals with national and global initiatives as a partner at Houston-based law firm Hunt & Andrews Kurth. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Alex, how close are we to going from 40% of current total electric energy to a goal of 80% by 2030? Well, when we say electric energy, there, let's kind of parse that a bit further. There are essentially two major elements. One is the electricity generated on the power grid. That is one. And then the second part of it, and, and there are others, but the two main groupings that I would focus on now would be the electricity generation and energy power for transportation. So transportation fuels, for example. Those are the two biggest groupings that most people think of when they talk about energy transition and the share of energy that's based on net zero carbon emitting resources. Looking at electricity generation and the grid, we've seen a tremendous growth in the share of renewable power sourcing that electricity. It's gone from less than 10% 10 to 15 years ago to about 25% in the United States right now, and that's expected to grow. In fact, of all the new generation that's coming online, more than the majority of that is renewable-based, and in particular, wind and solar. Wind has grown about 300% in terms of the share of uh, generation capacity over the last 10 years, and solar started out very small and is now growing exponentially. We're also seeing that growth in countries, uh, emerging markets like China and India, that are really uh, have been dependent on coal-powered generation for a long time and are now investing significantly in renewables to kind of bend their overall carbon emissions curve and reach their Paris Agreement goals. Uh, There's a lot of going on in the terms of the shift. The question becomes, will we shift, uh, will we as as a world or as a country shift to renewable generation sufficiently to meet 2050 net zero carbon emission targets that countries have set in connection with the Paris Agreement. And you know, we can leave aside the arguments as to whether it should be 2050 or some other date. Uh, the question is, can we get there? According to the International Energy Agency, you need to have about 70 to 80%, I think, of about two-thirds or three-fourths of your power uh, generation capacity to be renewable to meet the targets and keep climate from a warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, or at least under 2 degrees Celsius. Is it likely that we're going to get there? Probably not. But the good news is that there is growth, and we're also seeing uh, the proliferation of technologies that will allow traditional energy sources like natural gas to operate in a low or zero carbon emissions on a net basis format, so that it will not only stay competitive from a cost standpoint, but it will basically contribute to carbon emissions reductions in the long term. The question, of course, is are those technologies that you have to add 
to the next financeable? Will they make the energy resource cost efficient? And uh, we've seen some ways of doing that, particularly with respect to tax credits uh, and other programs that are provided most recently in the Inflation Reduction Act. Why isn't the demise of oil and gas happening anytime soon? Well, there are lots of reasons for that. And, and part of it is that energy demand grows as the population grows, as economies and emerging markets grow. And so you have to keep pace with that growth. So if you're going to expand the share of renewables, not only do you have to account for an expanding share of your current demand, but you have to anticipate additional growth down the road, and you have to expand renewable sources even more in those countries that have a larger share of their energy source coming from, say, coal or you know, more, more, more polluting sources. So part of it is the fact that you're not going to be able to get those resources in quickly enough to keep up with demand. Secondly, wind and solar resources are intermittent. Now, there are other technological solutions for that that will allow us to harness excess energy that's produced and then put it back on the grid when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow. And those technologies are emerging and becoming commercially viable. But at the end of the day, the world is going to require a mix of energy sources. And there needs to be significantly more investment in oil and gas to just keep up with demand as it stands, leave aside potential growth prospects. As you know, you know, the oil and gas fields have natural depletion over time. And so unless you're investing in developing new fields or exploiting existing ones further, that depletion is going to restrict supply considerably. What happens when supply goes down precipitously and demand goes up? Well, you have prices go up and then you develop scarcity. And that's not a situation that most consumers want to be in. So the good news is that by having a portfolio strategy of multiple energy sources and combining fossil fuel sources with carbon mitigation technologies like carbon capture and sequestration, you can basically have cost-effective energy going forward that reduces our overall carbon footprint. Can you discuss the growth of carbon capture technology and how it makes natural gas more accessible? Well, basically, to keep it simple, it basically is a technology that's added to the existing combined cycle gas generation process, basically where gas is combusted to drive turbines to generate electricity. That combustion process produces CO2 as a byproduct. That byproduct has to be put somewhere. Right. And so the technology is there to basically filter out whatever comes out of the combustion process to filter out the CO2 and effectively send it via pipeline or some other transportation modality to an area where it can be sequestered underground in a geological formation, more likely uh, in an oil and gas field that's been depleted or is requiring an enhanced oil recovery to get out the remaining bits of oil from it. So you can basically, you're basically sticking the CO2 emissions underground in a manner that is not likely to emerge from, uh, it's not going to leak or anything. It's a cluster underground. There are other ways of doing it, but that's the one that's most commonly talked about. And the issue is, you know, investing in the infrastructure to get, to take the CO2 that's removed from the gas combustion process in gas power plants and then take it to the areas where it can be sequestered. I'm speaking with energy and infrastructure expert Alex Chewinski. Which renewable energy will be the hottest alternative, wind, solar, or something else? Well, you know, it's, uh, I would say based on what the trends are, it's 
solar and something else, and I'll talk about that something else in a second, we've seen the efficiency of solar grow tremendously. It used to be 15, 20 years ago, the net kilowatt hour of energy produced by solar was not competitive with, say, natural gas without additional support from the government in the form of tax credits. And so we've seen for the last 15 years, 20 years, uh, the government provide production and investment tax credits for both wind and solar to try to juice those industries and help them become more efficient. We have finally seen solar develop a marginal cost profile that's competitive with natural gas and may become even more competitive if gas prices go up over time. The issue there is how do you utilize the solar energy when it's most needed, and but when the sun doesn't shine, right? And that's where the other comes in, the, the, the technologies that are designed to store energy. And there are multiple technologies that are being developed and that are coming online commercially. One is bat, you know, utility-scale lithium-ion battery storage. Basically, think of your lithium-ion battery in your appliance and think of that on steroids, right, attached to the grid. Right, so this massive battery system that combines maybe both wind and solar resources connected to them takes the excess energy, and when nightfall comes in and peak demand comes around, the battery storage unit will essentially inject that surplus energy back into the grid where it's most needed. So it, it could act like a what a peaker plant would do now to meet peak demand, but without the carbon emissions associated with peaker projects, with uh, peaker plants, which is significant. So those are the technologies that are proliferating, that are being put into place commercially. It's not clear. There are other technologies as well. For example, there is a lot of development behind the use of hydrogen as a, not just a, an alternative fuel, but also a way to store energy. That's called green hydrogen. Store energy from renewable sources and transport it to places where it can be used when it's needed. Hydrogen is difficult to handle. And there's a lot of energy loss in that process. So it, we're still, the market and the, you know, the, the industry is still trying to figure out the efficiency of it. But there's also a possibility of using ammonia, converting hydrogen to ammonia, and using ammonia as a transportation option for that excess green energy and using it in a planet where it's needed, as well as use as, a, as, a, as an alternative fuel to transportation. So we've seen this proliferation of technologies. It's an exciting time to be in this industry. How will the price of commodities be affected by certain political climates, which aren't conducive to expanding gas and oil refinery? Well, it, it's, uh, it is a challenge because if you suppress or disincentivize investment in oil and gas, then you create a situation where it can't keep up with the growing demand. And then unless you have another option that can fill in that gap, you're going to have a scarcity situation and you're going to see prices rise significantly. So government policy is important, but it's not the only factor that weighs in this. I think one of the things that you've seen in the industry recently, especially during COVID, a lot of oil and gas companies really got hit hard during COVID. And so they've had to cut back on their capex. And now, now that, you know, we're, with demands back up and prices have come back up for oil and gas, people in the oil and gas industry are investing again, but they're not investing as much for a variety of reasons. One of it is, of course, regulatory and political uncertainty. But the other one is the fact that investors are also concerned. They don't know 
how resilient oil and gas demand will be in the next 20, 30 years. Which, you know, you need to have a 30-year window or, or outlook to develop these projects. They take a very long time and they're very expensive. So if you're going to invest hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in, in exploring and developing, you need to have a long time horizon. If you're betting that oil and gas demand will be less 20 or 30 years ago, as an investor, you're not going to want that company that you've invested in to invest more in capital expenditures, right? You're going to want them to basically max out the resources they have and provide dividends or do share buybacks, right? So investors are pushing companies to have greater financial discipline and limit their overall capex. And so that combined with regulatory or political restrictions or constraints, as well as financing constraints, may very well affect the supply of oil and gas in years to come. Tell us about the mega trends of oil, natural gas, and the impact of Ukraine for 2023. Well, Ukraine's sort of been an interesting game changer in some ways. You know, prior to the Ukraine war, there was significant pressure on oil and gas companies to kind of shift out of that line of business or expand their line of business into alternative energy sources. And many, many oil and gas companies are doing exactly that. But no one counted on the Ukraine war happening. And, you know, the EU in particular was heavily dependent on natural gas supplies from Russia through the Nord Stream pipelines and whatnot. And so the long-term goal for the EU is is to shift more and more towards renewables, as they have been doing. But they're still dependent on natural gas. So when those natural gas prices shot up and there were supply constraints as a result of the war, they had to scramble to find other resources, and they couldn't just suddenly plop in more renewables, right? They had to basically take some coal plants out from mothballs and start rehabilitating them. And so coal, of course, is not particularly friendly from a carbon standpoint. So that's an issue, and that's kind of driven the coal market a bit as a result of that need for to make up for the loss in natural gas from Russia. But also, it's it's benefited U.S. industry by really juicing the existing plans for LNG projects on the on the Gulf Coast and and making exports to Europe more promising. The U.S. has been sending again liquefied natural gas to Europe to make up for that shortfall. And it seems like that market might still be resilient for a while, regardless of what happens in in Ukraine. We're also seeing gas demand increase in countries like India. Uh, In fact, the gas demand in India may probably, natural gas demand may double over the next 10 years. So I think in the short to midterm, you're going to see a very healthy environment for oil and gas, particularly when you can find technologies and you can help fund technologies that mitigate its carbon exposure. And with the most recent tax incentives, that's become more likely now. What would you say are the biggest challenges to making this energy transition? I think that the biggest challenges are, there are a number of them. I think one of them is the ability to adapt quickly to change. And I'm thinking specifically of, for example, wholesale energy markets where you have an energy market where you you have to manage uh, generation uh, and link generation to demand. And our energy markets and our grid are, are used to having fossil fuel plants, and they're just getting adjusted. Uh, when you add energy storage to that, it also changes the mix, right? And our transmission capability needs to expand. Now, there's a significant backlog of renewable projects 
that are really waiting to get approvals for interconnection into the grid. Uh, the studies take several years to complete, and that's on top of all the other permitting and regulatory requirements and hoops that these projects have to go through. So those are you know, very much real holdups in the expansion, uh, even further expansion, of uh, renewable energy resources in the U.S. And then, of course, there may be different constraints in other countries, but the, the, the news there is that countries like China and India are investing heavily in adding renewable capacity to their uh, generation uh, system and adding it to their grids and trying to overcome those challenges as well. So the process is happening. There are just some hiccups and bottlenecks along the way. I've been speaking with energy and infrastructure expert Alex Chawinski. Any last thoughts for us? I think the last thoughts are that it's a very hopeful and exciting time where we are seeing the market bring a variety of different technologies for energy generation to bear, and also alternative fuels, biofuels, for example. Not all of these technologies are going to pan out, but if some of them pan out and become super efficient, then it creates a great deal of diversity in our energy markets that allows us to be versatile, allows us to respond to growing demand at reasonable cost. And we just have to work in adapting our grid and our systems to accommodate those. But the evolution of these technologies is exciting. Uh, A lot is happening and it's a good time to be in this market. Where can we go to learn more? Well, there are lots of sources online. You can go to, uh, there are federal resources like EIA.gov where you can get information from the U.S. Energy Information Administration on basic facts and figures on energy generation capacity, the share of energy sources. There's a lot of cool data there, but it is kind of uh, nerdy in the sense that if you're not into graphs and charts and numbers, you may not be you know, enamored with it, but it is a great resource. But there are lots of other sources and general uh, you know, mainstream media outlets online. There are some energy publications and journals online that provide lots of information, updates on what's going on in the energy markets. There are aggregator sites like Real Clear Energy. There are lots of resources for those who are looking to find information on what's going on in the market. Thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing these updates. No, absolutely. My pleasure. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.